Jefferson County, 1936. Mark Shackleman is working his shift as a night watchman on the campus of a large healthcare facility. While making his rounds outside, the watchman encounters something he would never be able to fully explain, but it would haunt him for the rest of his life. A large wolf-like creature standing on two legs like a human was staring back at him with glowing red eyes and murderous fangs before running into the woods beyond. Unbeknownst to Shackleman at the time, his encounter would become the earliest known sighting of one of Wisconsin's most famous and frightening legends, the Beast of Bray Road. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode 26 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman. Along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, buddy? I can just hear you catching yourself on how you're going to... Your other host. Your other host! Should I be genuine? Should I not? How do I I screw with him today? Now, happy 4th of July, everybody. We are heading right into uh, the July 4th holiday this weekend. Hope you are uh, all uh, out celebrating in a uh, very safe and responsible manner. Drink Wisconsinably, you all know that. And and hopefully we can bring a little bit of a Badger Bazaar to your weekend. Although we're, we're covering a little more lighter subject, I think. A little folklore uh, on the agenda for today. but There is some death involved with some of the stories we talk about. Well, so there's always death involved yeah, in what we're doing. I mean, I mean it's it, part, part of the gig. Don't think know? we're giving up on it altogether. <laughs> not at all. You got if some blood if and nobody dies, we're not talking about <laughs> we're it. We're not pretty, pretty even much. bothering. Hope, hope we can add a, a little bit of entertainment to your probably already entertainment-filled weekend. So we uh, obviously, summertime, we have uh, some events coming up. Mickey and I, uh, along with Jim Cooper again, are going to be heading up to Summer Wind in just a couple of weeks. And Can't we are wait. Super excited. I, I, I don't for get that. as hyped up for stuff as I used to anymore because I'm, you know, a salty old man. But like, like you said, I, I'm getting pretty pumped for that. I, just to just to visit the grounds is going to be amazing. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's purported to be the most one of the most haunted parcels of land in the nation. Right. So, I mean, it, it's even a though big it's deal. not on this list, we're going to talk it, about today. Yeah. So well, you know, there's always lists for something. Up. So, yeah. also later this month on July 29th, I am going to be at the Cheyenne Settlers Heritage Society fundraiser 
and Reunion, talking about my book, Finding Dairyland, which has uh, a chapter of Cheyenne Valley in it, uh, a very unique region in the country, probably one of the, if not the, first integrated community in the nation. Why? Seriously? No doubt about it. Another yeah. first in the state. Like, and it, the, the range of the firsts, you know, like even how we had in the Fox Valley, that first trolley type vehicle. I mean, we got so many firsts yeah, here. The electric trolley. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, something like that. Is, I mean, that's there, amazing. There's nothing, you know, historians can't say for certain that this is the first uh, integrated in community in the nation. But, the, you know, in the, in the early 1850s, Cheyenne Valley, which is in southwestern Wisconsin, was settled by runaway slaves. And, and, and freed slaves, you know, and they came up here at that time, 1855-ish, uh, blacks and natives and whites, and they all integrated, they intermarried, they had children, they went to church together, they went to school together, and that wasn't happening in the rest of the country well, in the 1850s, right? And you right? think about it, even when we were growing up in our area, there it was mostly white people, so right, no it doubt. sounds a little surprising that that even could be the case, and but that's he, awesome. And they also dairy farmed. They were barn builders, for dairy farmers, and they had a big, big reason to do with Wisconsin becoming America's Dairyland. And I don't remember, you know, growing growing up, going to school here my entire life, uh, learning about the impact of African Americans on Wisconsin becoming Americans, right? Um, well, they were. Uh, you can all read about it in my book, Finding Dairyland, and I'll be in Cheyenne Valley, which is is today. It's called Hillsboro. It's right about in that area. Cheyenne Valley does not exist really anymore, but their descendants are still there. And they're actually all over the country, and they all come back to Hillsboro once a year, and they have this this fundraiser and reunion for um, for the area. So it's it's a it's a big deal, you know. It's an important event, and it's really fun to go to. And I'm looking forward to that again. That's July 29th. Uh, that's a Saturday at Hillsboro Firemen's Memorial Park. There's going to be lots of food, music, lots of drinking. I'm sure. What ridiculous! You cannot have a cookout. Right? Without any kind of or any out. Uh, beverages flowing. Historian Kevin Alderson is going to be there. He's wonderful. He's going to be doing a massive PowerPoint presentation on the history of Cheyenne Valley. I will be there selling my book. It's going to be uh, a, a gay old time. So come on out. July 29th, uh, Fireman's Memorial Park in Hillsboro, Wisconsin. I just want to say that the fact that we don't remember learning in our history classes about it, that's it's not that we don't remember, it's that we didn't Well, learn. right, yeah, there's nothing to remember, but th- the point I'm making is that's the reason that there's now a Black History Month, because it was just sure. disregarded altogether, and you know, people might have an opinion about that, but that's why they're trying to push the whole idea that blacks have been part of our history for the, in, the entirety of it, and it needs to be known. You know? Excellent point. MGM Plus lands docuseries on Killer, who inspired Psycho and Silence of the Lambs. That, of course, if you don't know... David Spanbauer. Not quite. Oh. I'm sure he inspired something, though. <laughs> Inspiration may be the wrong word. The uh, person who inspired Psycho and Silence of the Lambs is, of course... Ed Gein. Edward Gein. It says here, MGM Plus will examine one of America's most notorious serial killers in a four-part documentary series. The cable outlet and streamer, which I don't know... I don't have MGM Plus. I don't, I don't even I'd know. Either. Well, there's like know. Paramount Plus and all. Those. Sure, They're yeah. All doing that now. So you know, maybe this is. I mean, MGM obviously is a big is deal. a big name. So right. um, maybe it's getting to where it's going to be in people's uh, living rooms. It says the cable outlet and streamer has picked up Psycho, the lost tapes of Ed Gein, directed and executive produced. 
by James Buddy Day. Gein has been the subject of numerous documentaries since his 1950s crimes were uncovered. The killer known as the Mad Butcher and the Plainfield Ghoul also served an inspiration for villains in movies Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs. The Lost Tapes of Ed Gein will feature previously unheard recordings of Gein and explore Gein's twisted relationship with his mother. Yes. His early grave that robbing. the biggest factor of his existence. And the murders leading up to his arrest. And, I mean, Netflix was a big deal anyway, but look what Dahmer did for Netflix. So oh, it was massive. Th- no I doubt. think this might be a huge thing for MGM Plus, too, obviously. It says, quote, This gripping and disturbing docuseries shines a light on an infamous chapter in our true crime history. Psycho takes an in-depth look at not only the life of one of the most notorious serial killers of our time, but also explores the impact his crimes had on both the victims and our culture. Now, it says it's got some new information in it. I'm not really sure what what could they possibly have. Right, after so many years. But, you know, I'm assuming these are audio tapes from when he was incarcerated and probably being interviewed by psychiatrists, forensic pathologists, uh, so on and so forth. So looking forward to that, as Mickey mentioned, Dahmer was a huge hit for Netflix, and there is no question that that is why MGM Plus is doing this on Ed Gein because they, they saw are the different, like you that. say, that wasn't a documentary, so to speak. But and this will actually be fact based completely, but you still get the point. I mean, these are two of the most notorious killers of all time, and hey, they're both from our state. Oh, and they could do more from our state. Oh, heck yeah, as well. spinning them out all the time. Taylor's your business. Other, and another uh, interesting bit of news that came out this week our congressman, our congressman, I say that because we are in the Fox Valley, uh, we are in the eighth district. Our congressman was on the Pat McAfee show, of all places. That's where Rogers usually spills this, his Right. Beans. Well, he's not available anymore, apparently. He's too busy practicing with his team. So Isn't now, that funny? Right, right. right. Crazy. That's weird. He didn't do that here for the longest time. Here, this is from Newsweek. GOP congressman suggests UFOs may be ancient civilization. A Republican congressman has suggested that unidentified flying objects could be an ancient civilization that is hiding on Earth but has only just begun to show itself. Mike Gallagher, a representative for Wisconsin and chair of the House Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, discussed various theories about the potential origins of alien sightings while appearing on the Pat McAfee show on Tuesday. Now, before you roll your eyes, in Mike Gallagher's defense, they were freely talking about everything. He did not say... UFOs are from no, and these, an ancient civilization. And as I've talked about, there's, these are theories they talk about on ancient aliens and right. shows like that all the time. And I, you can roll your eyes at me all you want. I believe that these theories exist because aliens have been part of our past and are a great factor in the cosmos. I, I mean, if, if you believe that there's no chance, then I, I think you're maybe the crazy one, you know? So I don't know that he would declare something like this in his position because people will jump to conclusions but it's it's fun to think about this stuff because i do believe they're out there we're and, not alone. And, and gallagher is i don't care what anybody thinks about his politics gallagher is a smart dude he is a foreign policy expert he's like 36 years old he's not an old guy yeah he, he does his homework and it says on the pat mcafee show he spoke about the ongoing efforts of congress to investigate claims that the government may be in possession of technology not from this world House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer announced an investigation into allegations at the beginning of June. It says, appearing on the sports talk show, Gallagher suggested that one possible explanation of supposed, supposed UFO sightings was the so-called 
Terminator theory, based on the film of the same name, that aliens were actually human beings from the future. Another hypothesis, he says, was that as opposed to being us from the future, it could actually be an ancient civilization that's just been hiding here and is suddenly showing itself. So, again, he's not going on there saying... This is what's happening. He, they were talking freely. It's I did just a to concept. It. It's just right. They were throwing everything out there. And and I, I'm sorry, but no. it, I, I'm passionate about this stuff. I do believe, like I said, I've said many times, to think that there's the math says there's over 50 billion galaxies in our cosmos, which that term just means the organized version of the universe. If it's not organized, then it's just the term universe. But if there's that many galaxies, you got to figure there's. How many planets in each galaxy? You got to figure there's other life at least as intelligent as us out there. And why wouldn't they have visited here if they have the means to do it? And I think the government more and more is talking about technology that they've come across and even possible beings that they might. You're starting to see that stuff leak out more and more. So I do believe there's a basis for these conversations to be happening. And we're starting to get to the point where you're not crazy because you're talking about it, as I've said before. And I love it. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree with it. I, I you know I just base hypothesis on what information is out there that I can make an opinion on. And just because these theories are out there, that doesn't I'm not going to necessarily believe those theories. Do I think it's possible that this stuff is has happened? Sure. Right, but and again, it's it's a pseudoscience type of thing. Pseudoscience has all started somewhere and became science after all, science fact after eventually. So just because it's considered pseudoscience doesn't mean it's not going to be conti- proved as fact at some point. And you had an experience, as we talked about episodes ago, yeah, that that made you realize that there's possibility of this stuff. Being sure, out there, yeah, even and, more and than you already had. I never, you know, necessarily did not believe in UFOs or aliens. I just had no reason in my own experiences to to believe that they had any kind of contact with us. Right. Um, that, as you just said, has changed a little bit when sure. I saw something in the sky this past Christmas time that I will never in my entire life be able to explain. And it was proven by thousands of other, yes, people, other people saw it, to right. have been seen, not just you being crazy. Right. So something else is out there in this you know, wherever we live, something else is there. I have no problem at all saying that. It's just like paranormal investigating, ghosts right. and whatnot. I, I consider it the same there, kind there's, of thing, too. I have, there's zero doubt in my mind. I have seen it. I have felt it. I have witnessed it, that there are things in our realm that, that are happening that we don't know what they are. But I don't know that they're spirits of dead people. You know what I mean? I don't know that anybody's broken that veil and is trying to communicate with the live. I have no idea what they are. Um, but there is something going on, without question, in our space uh, and earth and, you know, realm that we we have no idea. No, we're just uh, you know, even, even what we're talking about today, when we get into the, the meat of our, our subject today, you know, a lot of it is cast off as folklore, and that might be true. Maybe not. But some of it could even be considered or explained... By being otherworldly. I mean, if you want to branch out in that direction. No it, doubt about it. In and, fact, and, some, and one, one specific subject actually is about UFOs. But yeah, I think we need to be open-minded about this stuff, if nothing else. Because if you just lock your mind and say there's no way it exists, then we don't continue to expand as a civilization. 100%. Last thing I want to talk about here, I found, you know I'm all, I'm all about lists. I love top 10 lists. I love lists of all factions right i found another list that just came out on june 30th right just a few days ago 10 haunted places to visit in wisconsin 
We've talked about this. Why do ad, they keep coming up with those nauseam. kinds of lists? And they're out of staters that are doing it, right? This is from Listverse. Oh, so sure. I, I don't know where they are. Well, listen to what they, they say about Wisconsin. Wisconsin is known for its picturesque landscapes and friendly communities, but, but beneath its charming exterior lies a darker side. <laughs> the state is home to a number of haunted places that are sure to give even the bravest of souls a chill down their spine. From haunted hotels and cemeteries to abandoned asylums and theaters, Wisconsin has a rich history of ghostly sightings and paranormal activity now this list goes over a lot of things that we have talked about on this show um that i'm not in the fister hotel nelson's hall uh high cliff state park all of these that we've talked sheboygan asylum lacrosse all these that we've talked about one number three on this list is something that we haven't yet talked about even number one was something we haven't discussed a whole lot was it and number two which interestingly we're talking the, the about the top three today Go figure. yeah so let's yeah let's let's hit the let's hit the top three. So number three is Glenbeulah School. Glenbeulah School was established in 1849 as a primary schoolhouse for younger and older children. <laughs> so kids? Not sure what this means. <laughs> younger and older kids. What the? It says during the early 1900s, however, many rural schools in Wisconsin underwent a transformation from single-room schoolhouses to large educational institutions that catered to various ages and grades. Glenbeulah was one of these schools and merged with another school into a new building. The old school was closed and abandoned in 1995 and remained that way for 27 years. Eventually, Melissa Clevenger and Craig Naring purchased the property, intending to turn it into an event space. However, we know that guy. We do. They quickly realized they were not alone in the building. Visitors to the location also reported experience. experiencing strange occurrences such as slamming doors, unexplained footsteps, and shadowy figures. Motion detectors often picked up movement and people that were not physically present. The most common reports were of voices, including laughter, screams, and full conversations in rooms that were found to be empty. Now, Glenbeulah School is where the Great Lakes Paranormal Conference is going to be held September 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, of this year. It's going to be quite big. It is the first annual Great Lakes Paranormal Conference being held at the Glen Beulah School, September 22nd to the 24th, 2023. And it says here, at the haunted Glen Beulah School in Wisconsin comes the first conference in the area of its kind. Speakers include Jason Hawes from Ghost Hunters, Holzer Files, David Schrader, Adam Berry from Kindred Spirits, Re- renowned paranormal storyteller Jeff Belanger, Mike Huberty, Wisconsin favorite Chad Lewis and cryptid hunter Lyle Blackburn. They didn't mention and us. And many, many more. They didn't mention Does us. not mention us, but we what? will be there. We will. You know, number two on this list is the Anderson Library at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater, which is right in the middle of the Kettle Moraine State Forest. Now, this says, according which we will be talking about today. We will hit this a little more in our show today. It says, according to local legend, the Anderson Library on the University of Wisconsin campus is haunted by an evil book that has caused four people to take their own lives and driven countless others insane. This ominous book is believed to be connected to the Witches of Whitewater and is so dangerous that the library had to lock it away in the basement. The book, a large antique hymnal written in Latin, was donated to the library after an area church was closed. It is available for viewing, but only upon request and with extreme caution. So we will hit on that uh, much larger story of 
all the things that go on in Whitewater. Whitewater is a creepy that town. That is a messed up town. There's Great stuff town. Going on. And number one on this list is is a place that I've heard about quite a bit, but I've never seen it on any list, not any like most haunted list or anything like that. Me either. But I've heard that this is haunted, including from my wife, who has lunch here, I think, quite frequently. Oh, really? This is the Union Hotel in Green Bay. Well, it's actually in De Pere. It says the Union Hotel in De- I've been there a few times. It's a nice place. Is it haunted? What would you see? I My food. <laughs> and then I ate it. The food there was good is the point okay. I'm making. I didn't see any so, ghosts. They didn't carry it to me or anything. All right. It says the Union Hotel in De Pere, Wisconsin, is said to be haunted by the ghost of a former employee named Hannah. According to local legend, Hannah was a young woman who worked at the hotel in the late 1800s and was tragically killed in a fire that broke out in the kitchen. Guests of the Union Hotel have reported strange occurrences, such as the feeling of being watched and unexplained noises coming from the kitchen area. Some have even claimed to have seen the ghostly figure of Hannah wandering the hotel. One of the most chilling stories associated with the Union Hotel is that of a guest who was staying in a room on the top floor. They reported waking up in the middle of the night to find Hannah standing at the foot of their bed, staring at them with a sad expression on her face. (laughs) Which seems kind of anticlimactic. There's no axe or blood or anything, but, right? Just Panna. But I have heard, because I, I have I have been there a few a couple of times, I think, and it's just a cool place to go. Anyway, this just kind of adds another layer. One of the things I, I like about these lists is this is interesting because a lot of times you look at these lists and what we've talked about before, even when we did our top ten list back uh, around Halloween, a lot of them are the same. They just all parrot off one another, right? Right, and they and just kind of change. The this order. one is different, and yeah, Summerwind is. is not on this. Summerwind's not on there. Right. Obviously, crazy. because it doesn't exist anymore. I guess that's one. That's why it's not one of the top ten haunted places to visit. So, I mean, the plot of land does, but but we technically I mean, you can't visit there. But, our list is pretty different from this one, the one that we went through for right, two episodes. Right. So, if you got a list, you send it to me. I want to check it out. The list man will confirm if it's accurate or not. So the Kettle Moraine, one of the most popular outdoor recreation areas in the entire state. Mickey, you and I both spent time there. I would imagine the majority of people listening have spent time there or at least have heard of the Kettle Moraine. You're at least familiar with it. Right. I know a lot of people listening, you know, judging from the the messages that we get and so forth, are not necessarily from Wisconsin or they've just moved here. Um, So they may not be fully familiar with it. Um, but I would imagine that majority of people listening have been there, spent time there, camped there, hiked there. So for those that may not be familiar, the Kettle Moraine is a stretch of land covering much of the eastern part of the state, beginning uh, in the north in Kiwani County all the way down to Walworth County in the south, which is the uh, you know Lake Geneva, Delavan area. And the county borders the state of Illinois. So it stretches quite a way from Kiwani down pretty much to the border with Illinois. Now, it's a unique region. It was carved out of the last ice age some ten or 11,000 years ago when the glaciers were retreating. Up to 20,000 years ago, yeah. even. Now, as it, as it was retreating, it, it gouged the state, right, creating this topography in a series of kettles, which are indentations in the earth, and moraines, which are deposits of rock and boulders crushed up sand and clay. Now, the indentations, obviously, are filled with water, and they become small lakes and streams, and the moraines are the hilly bluffs that overlook them. So it's one of the best examples of 
glacial formations in the world before it was all, not all, but before a lot of it was plowed over and flattened by Europeans for development in the 19th century uh, and early 20th century, the state protected it. The state saw it was happening. We were losing a lot of that, you know, very unique topography, and the state came in and protected a lot of it and created what we now have as the Kettle Moraine State Forest. I actually have a few definitions for some of these glaciated area type features. Kettle Lake is a depression or a hole in an outwash plain formed by retreating glaciers or draining floodwaters as they leave blocks of dead ice behind, which become surrounded by sediment deposited by meltwater streams with increased friction. Another term, came, which I'm not real familiar with, a came, K-A-M-E, is a steep-sided mound of sand and gravel deposited by melting ice sheet. And an esker, E-S-K-E-R, is a ridge made of sand and gravel deposited by glacial meltwater flowing through tunnels with and underneath glaciers or through meltwater channels on top of glaciers. There's your lesson for the day. Sounds exciting, but now we know how they're formed. You said dead ice. There's our there's the death that we were talking dead about. Dead ice. Right? I mean even the ice is dead. Now, when they created Kettle Moraine, they created it in two sections, right? The northern unit, which is thirty thousand acres in Washington, Fond du Lac, and Sheboygan counties, and the southern unit, which is twenty two thousand acres in Waukesha, Walworth, and Jefferson counties. Now those are split up into units by themselves as well, but there's basically two main units, the northern and southern units. And it's pushing about 3 million visitors a year. So this it's a happening place, right? And every kind of outdoor recreation you can think of to do there any kind of year. Well, it includes 250 miles of hiking trails, 150 miles of snowmobile trails, 130 miles of equestrian trails, almost 100 miles of cross-country ski trails, 75 miles of off-road bicycle trails, including 30 miles of single track trail, 750 campsites, and multiple observation towers, amongst many other interesting factors. Any charging stations for my iPad? <laughs> Where do I plug in my <laughs> USB cord? Now, although it has a world-renowned reputation for the tremendous outdoor recreation, it's also gaining quite another reputation, right? The Kettle Moraine and many of the towns in and around it uh, are also becoming world-famous for the weird happenings that are reported there. Weird Wisconsin. Cryptids, UFOs, ghosts, witches, dogmen, you name it. So uh, basically in general, just just these legends of the creatures as we've talked about. Things like dogmen, which are technically werewolves, vampires, Bigfoot, giant storks, supersized humanoid bats with a 15-foot wingspan, lizard people, hold eggs, pigmen, goatmen, out-of-place kangaroos, lake monsters, UFOs, and little people referred to as haunchies as we discussed in some detail in episode six. Great episode, by the that, way. That's one, one of, my, of favorites my favorites still, right? Overall, this is these are stories that come from credible, sober, sane, down-to-earth people in the state that have long claimed encounters with all these types of otherworldly and legendary creatures. There's a history to a lot of these kind of legends, whether they're based on reality or just people wanting to see something or just stories to explain things that are going on that they don't want to necessarily take responsibility for even. But the diverse Wisconsin landscape has inspired these great stories from the local indigenous people, including the Ho-Chunks, the Algonquins, the Mississippians, the Fox, the Sacs, the Ojibwe, among many others. In fact, these Native American people have stories including things like the flying raptor known as the Thunderbird, whose eyes and wings created thunder and lightning. They had a horned water panther known as the, forgive me if I brutalize this, 
Mishipeshu. That was accurate, right? Sounded perfect. They also have a river serpent with dinner plate-sized red eyes known for carving the Wisconsin River, and they were known to have a skeletal giant made mostly of ice known as the Wendigo. If melted, the remains revealed shriveled carcass of original victim. So this is not a fun creature. This These are nasty monster-type creatures. Then we go on to like foreign fur trappers, traders, and Jesuit priests that brought their own tales from the native lands of monsters as they settled in the 17th and 18th centuries. They added names like Fairy Chasm, Black Earth, and Devil's Lake to our state's landscape. Creatures would include werewolves, little goblins, phantom hounds, vampires, and chupacabras, which I weirdly read a story recently. Yeah, they're, they're big down in, like, Texas. Uh, Houston, yeah. they mm-hmm. just had a story where they thought maybe they saw something. Chupacabra is a monstrous dog-like creature that attacks other animals and consumes their blood. The local lumberjacks, even, they invented their own tales, and those would include creatures like cougarfish, snow snake, and big blue oxen-like babe. Now, the most famous of these, of the Kettle Moraine, definitely is known as the Beast of Bray Road. Now, this has really been popular in popular culture the last several decades, really, from documentaries, B-movies, low-budget horror films, many, many books, articles in Fortean magazines, cryptid periodicals, TV shows like Monster Quest, Mystery Hunters, Destination X with Josh Gates, uh, Coast to Coast with George Nori. It's been all over the place. I love that show, Destination X. I wish that was still on. Now, what the so-called Beast of Bray Road is... Supposedly, according to eyewitnesses, is a bipedal, wolf-like creature, described as what seemingly looks like a wolf, but it walks upright on two legs like a human. Possibly stood over six feet tall. Standing between five and seven feet tall, it's covered with brownish, silvery fur with a long nose and glowing red eyes. It's been referred to as a werewolf or a Bigfoot, right? It's named for the road that is often seen around, a rural road in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, in Walworth County, named Bray Road. Now, the creature first came into the public consciousness because of, really, a now-defunct newspaper based in Delavan called The Week. Now, in 1991, a journalist for that paper at the time, named Linda Godfrey, was on the search for what she called a throwaway article, basically filler, as many say, just to kind of fill out the edition. And she's heard these. she had heard these rumors of a creature that was being reported to be seen by people around the area of Bray Road, this kind of like half-man, half-wolf type animal. Now, nobody was really taking this seriously, right? I mean, it sounds ridiculous. But these rumors and innuendos of this dog-man kept popping up. So she researched the story, and it blew up. So from this little paper called The Week, right, covering Elkhorn and Delavan and Whitewater and such, it was picked up by larger newspapers in the state, and then the AP, and pretty soon she was getting calls from Inside Edition and all these tabloid shows, and it became this kind of national phenomenon, which lasts to this day. I'm only, not even sure that was her goal. Only much bigger, no. Like you said, she worked at a local newspaper. She just wanted to delve into it because it was something interesting she could talk about. I don't she, think she was trying to seek this kind of national attention. She, but called it it a th- she called it a throwaway article. Right, and now and she's written multiple books on the yeah. subject, so it's really exploded. So the article she wrote was entitled Tracking Down the Beast of Bray Road, and that is the first time that that term was ever used. Nobody had a term for it. It was just this creature, this animal, right? This half man, half wolf 
thing that people are seeing in the darkness in the woods. So now that's just what she called it for the title of the article, right? She just came up with that term, Beast of Bray Road, and now it's, you know, cemented in Wisconsin folklore forever. So in the article from December of 1991, Godfrey writes, quote, the rumors floated around town for two years or so before I even heard them. A wolfish-looking creature that ran on two legs and had been seen around the Bray Road area, stealing chickens, eating roadkill, and scaring the daylights out of locals who, sometimes literally, ran into it. Although the story seemed like grist for the National Enquirer's mill, they were consistent enough to be intriguing. A certain number of people, good, honest, working fold, had seen something, something unusual, something scary. Just to specify, the Bray Road is actually a rural stretch of road connecting State Highway 11 and County Road NN. It's it's an average rural road. It's not in the middle of nowhere either. You know, it's, it's no, but it's I mean, not a huge stretch or anything. No, it, but it, I mean, you're an hour from Milwaukee. You're an hour from Madison. Like Mickey said, it connects 11 to NN, which is basically right next to I-43. Right, so it is a rural, but it's, highway, but it's right. not like a you know this kind of lonely country road. It's got old farms on it, and dark woods on either side. So you know it's rural enough to hide something if something wants to be hidden. It's only about a mile long, I think, right. yeah, maybe two miles. It's not a long, but in the, of road. kind of in the center of developed areas, but yet still kind of isolated. So Godfrey starts her research on this creature, right? Not really expecting much. And she starts asking questions around Elkhorn if anybody had ever heard of this this wolfman around town, right? And she's blown away by the response. Like a lot of people start talking to her about this because many of them tell her that they saw something, but they haven't told anybody else because they don't want anybody to think they're crazy. Oh, especially right? back then when you couldn't talk about this stuff. Right. right? So now in the article, Godfrey uses eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts from several people, and they used aliases. Because, you know, clearly they don't want to be ridiculed because that's kind of the society we live in, right? If you say something out of the accepted norm, you'll be brutalized for it. Which is a little weird. We're more open-minded to things being different than what we already know, but we're so quick to judge. So the paradox continues. That's human beings for you. So in an account in the article from someone named Barbara, Right? She's just in the article, she's just named Barbara. And we now know today that this is Lori and Dreezy. So they have come out since that article was published because this is blown up and they've realized that other people saw this too. They're okay with coming out using their names now. And her name is Lori and Dreezy. Um, and she came out and uh, she recounts one night back in 1989. Her story is she's, she's driving home from work. She was a manager of a, of a lounge, kind of like a bar manager in Elkhorn. And it's about 1.30 in the morning. So she's driving down Bray Road. Anything you see on a quiet country road is, is going to catch your attention at 1.30 in the morning. So she's got her senses going. She's driving. She's alert. So she first saw something on the side of the road. Initially, as she was coming up on it, it was its back was to her. And she said she could make out that it had pointy ears. She saw this from the back. As she drove past it, now she, she could see it from the front. And she stated it was kneeling. Its elbows were up and its claws were facing out. I remember the long claws. Now, I'm going to take a passage here. This is from Linda's book that came out after this in 2003 called The Beast of Bray Road. And Lori goes on, and in this book it says, quote, the claws held a chunk of what looked like a dead and flattened small mammal, roadkill. She had the impression that the creature had been dining upon it. Its eyes reflected the glow of her headlights, as most animals' eyes will at night, and she was surprised when the creature didn't run away. 
but turned its head to gaze back at her. She described the animal as dark brownish gray and the size of an average man, maybe five foot seven, 150 pounds. Determined to figure out what she had seen, Andreezy went to the library and began searching through the books until she came across an illustration labeled Werewolf in the Golden Book of the Mysterious by Western Publishing. The drawing of the creature with wolf-like head and human knees was it, said Andreezy. Quote, it was night and it was quite late, but I know what I saw. You don't mistake something like that. Andreezy said the creature was so man-like that she felt right away she was seeing something supernatural. Quote, to this day, I believe it was satanic. It was just my feeling. I don't really believe in werewolves per se, but I believe something could be conjured up. Unquote. So what she's saying here is that the creature, she saw the creature was kneeling, holding roadkill with its palms up and eating it. Right? Dogs and wolves cannot do that. No, palms up, they don't eat that way. So Linda's doing her research and she's compiling all these eyewitness accounts and all these stories from people who've had encounters with this seemingly mutant animal, right? And she meets with the animal control officer of Walworth County, a man by the name of John Fredrickson. And again, Godfrey is shocked when Fredrickson pulls out a manila envelope and on it is written werewolf. And it's full of eyewitness accounts of this thing that has been seen all over the place, right? All over Woolworth County, all pretty much saying the same thing. This kind of wolf-like head, bipedal, fangs, brown silvery fur. A couple, a couple people said that it began to chase them. And then one person said that it jumped on the back of her car, leaving scratch marks before it fell off, uh, you know, when she when she laid on the gas. And Linda has since gone on and compiled thousands of eyewitness accounts of this creature. In late winter of 1992, a woman named Tammy Bray, no relation to the road, claimed that encountering the beast driving home from work around 10.30 p.m. She said the canine humanoid crossed the road in front of her. She described it as having a strong-looking upper body but having, quote, slouchy, sloppy-like, unquote, movement in rear. Now, again, Linda, Linda had since gone on and compiled thousands of eyewitness accounts of this creature, the Beast of Bray Road, which, again, most people had not heard of before this time, before this late 80s, early 90s uh, time frame. And she's gone on, uh, compiled thousands of eyewitness accounts. Some of them go back as far as 1936. This seems to be the oldest, most closely related account of what could be this same animal. Well, not not necessarily the same animal, but the same species of animal. Whatever it is, it's this apparently, from all accounts we've read, would be the first sighting. Now, in this account, in 1936, Mark Shackleman was a night watchman at St. Coletta's School for Exceptional Children. Now, what an interesting place this was, right? St. Coletta's School for Exceptional Children. It's a campus for children with developmental disabilities. It opened in 1904 as the St. Coletta Institute for Backward Youth. Who was naming these? Right. Are you kidding me? <laughs> they, oh, they weren't as sensitive back then. You could say stuff and get Institute away with it Institute for Backward Re- Youth. Backward. Wow. I've been called a lot of things. Even I've never been called that. So Now, this was... This has an interesting history. This was also the place that Rosemary Kennedy which is the sister of John, Ted, and Robert, and the aunt of Robert Jr., who's right running for president now. Uh, this is where she was basically hidden away for decades after the, you know, the, the, the wonderful patriarch of the Kennedy family, Joe Kennedy, attempted to lobotomize his own daughter, and it was botched. 
right? So she, she had displayed some behaviors throughout her life, showed that she was maybe, you know, slow. She had some... Backwards. I guess so, yeah. Some maybe learning disabilities. She became quite erratic with mood swings in her early 20s. I don't know if it... If, I know a lot of people if that fall into these categories. You know, I don't know if, if her condition was ever... Diagnosed? Diagno- I mean, she sounds bipolar, right? Or, or like you a know. lot of people I know, actually. But, you know, because they were worried that she might embarrass the family during, you know, John and Robert's political careers, uh, they tried to lobotomize her because they hoped that it would calm her down. Yeah, that's sketchy. And that, this is at a time, they weren't, actual doctors weren't doing that kind of procedure for a long time at this point, so that's kind of ridiculous. No, it was basically brand new, you know, and there was really no scientific studies about this shit, you know, and so they, they basically put her, it was botched, and they put her in a vegetative state right so they she was brought Which here to live. was their goal anyway Maybe she it was she was brought here to, to saint coletta's school for exceptional children virtually abandoned by her family and that sounds crass i know that but it's virtually true joe but kennedy basically it's the island of misfit toys is what it comes down yeah, to i mean joe kennedy built her a house about a mile away from the main building right and that's where she received 24-hour care until she died in 2005 he never one time came to visit her of course not. At one time. He was embarrassed of her and wanted nothing to do with her because she didn't represent what he was trying to it, represent. The mother did a, a, a few times, but, you know, and I, I in, in the defense of John and Robert, I guess, and, and Ted, they didn't even know about it. They didn't know Right, so he didn't even tell his own brothers they about it. They kept it, it they, well, his sons. Oh, yeah. sorry, yeah, they, sons. They kept it from the rest of the family of what happened to her. They told her that they, she just was a, basically a renegade and ran away. It's like Goonies. Like the kid chained up to the basement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a very it's a quite and this is off the subject it's obviously, but it's it's a it's a terrible story. It it might even warrant its own episode to tell you the truth. Something. I mean, it's very bizarre. Obviously, deals with a, a a very famous family in American history, and it's something that was kept secret for a long, long time, even to her own family. Well, so, most types of families have a lot of circuits know. like that, I believe. But, you know, Ro- Rosemary Kennedy didn't, didn't go there until 1941, which is five years after Mark Shackleman. So the story that we're dealing with now, the Kennedys have nothing to do with it. I just wanted to bring that up to tell you that there's some sick people in this world. Because <laughs> you didn't know right, that already right. from our stories. M- Mark Shackleman is, uh, you know, in 1936, so he's working as a night watchman at this this huge campus, right? This this school for exceptional children. It's very kind of St. Nazians-esque, right? These old limestone buildings, very kind of uh, Victorian or Romanesque in their uh, in their makeup. Now, Shackleman at this time is in his 30s. This is in Jefferson, right? And he, he's, uh, so it's right next to Walworth County. It's in Jefferson. And he's walking the grounds at night, which he did every day. Right, this was his job. The campus is also in the vicinity of a number of Native American burial mounds, effigy mounds, as is much of Wisconsin. Right, there's a there's a huge amount of them uh, that still remain, even though a lot of them have been desecrated and um, plowed over over the the decades. But, but right, there's next, a lot of history that goes along with those. Of course, typically. but you know, right next to campus were several open fields with some of these effigy mounds um, had been preserved. Now, as Shackleman is crossing one of these fields, he sees a shadow that catches his eye, right? He sees what looks to be a figure hunched on all fours, digging, digging into one of these burial mounds. And from the way it's digging, it looked like a dog or a wolf, but Shackleman thought that it was way too big for that. Not so, using a shovel, just using its paws or whatever. Yeah, you know, right, right. Digging with its with its 
own paws. So suddenly the creature, whatever it is, notes his presence. He knows that Shackleman is there, and the thing stands up on its hind legs. Shocking Shackleman, right? He doesn't know what the hell he's looking at. Shocking Shackleman. Sounds like a show. Let's get on it. (laughs) Now this wolf or dog or whatever it is is standing over six feet tall. Right? It had a face of a wolf, a long snout, shaggy fur, brown and silvery. But he could tell by the muscle definition under the fur that it was very humanoid. It growled at him in a low, gurgling growl, and then it turned and sped away back into the tree line. Boom, gone. Right? Lightning fast. So the next night, he, he doesn't he doesn't know what he, what the heck he saw. He thinks he's looking at this big dog, and then the thing stands up on his hind legs, growls at him, and then takes off and running. So the next night, Shalkman's working again. I think I'm probably calling in sick that night, but not this guy. So he's working the next night, and he goes back to see if it's on the mound again. And it is. I bet you you'd go and see if it's there again. You're a ghost hunter. Not by myself, I wouldn't. Right. Well, yeah, you got to sure have Vicky's a posse with behind. Me. Yeah, make, <laughs> yeah, stand behind your wife, exactly. See, they want us to stand behind them, but not in every case, evidently. Now, digging in the same mound, that, that creature is still there. And again, the creature sees him, and again it stands up. And this time, it snarls at him while it's growling at him, almost as if it was trying to enunciate a language. Like it, almost like it was trying to say a word. And then again, it takes off into the trees. And, and he never saw it again in this haunted Shalkman for the rest of his life. He was never able to see it again. He doesn't know what it was. Now, it's accounts like this that Linda Godfrey has recorded since her initial article went viral, I guess you could say, before the internet, you know, in 1991. So Before viral was a thing. Right. Yeah. You know, sighting after sighting, even in recent years. One of the most well-known sightings is in recent years, 2006. It's from a contractor named Stephen Kruger. He, he was contracted to collect roadkill throughout Washington and Walworth counties. So he's driving Walworth and Washington counties in the middle of the night. Uh, he has a list of roadkill that he's supposed to pick up, right, to, to, to dispose of. So now according to Kruger, and this is from Linda Godfrey's website, a quote, according to Kruger, he was making his usual rounds the night of November 8th, 2006, when at about 1.30 in the morning, 1.30 in the morning of November 9th, he spotted a 70 to 80 pound deer that wasn't on his pickup list. So even though this kill is not on his list, he picks it up anyways, noting that it was still limp and probably freshly killed. So Kruger throws it into the back of his truck, and he's able to, to hoist the carcass into the truck with some effort, you know, using his knees for for stabilization. Now, after the getting the deer into the truck bed, he left the tailgate down and got into the cab of his truck and he's making notes. He left a light on that illuminates the truck bed and in compliance with DOT regulations, his flashing amber light on top of the cab was on. He had the windows rolled up and the radio playing loudly. Quote, the first I knew about it was when the truck shook, said Kruger. I thought it might be the wind, but when then it happened again, only stronger. I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw it. It was standing on the ground, bent over the tailgate, reaching into the back of the truck. It had its paw out and had the deer by one paw. I froze for a second from being shocked, said Kruger. I threw the truck into drive and stepped on it to get out of there. Now, since this has come out, um, Kruger has said he's sorry he reported it because it was being reported that he saw a Bigfoot. And he was very careful. He, he, you know, he, he even thought about not reporting it. You know, he saw this wolf-like thing 
kind of reach into his truck and pull out a deer with one arm, right? And then, and then leave and then run away. And he, when he reported it, he was very careful not to use the word Bigfoot because he didn't want people to think that he saw a Bigfoot because he's afraid of, again, being ridiculed. But somebody who reported it said that it was a Yeti. And again, a lot of these stories cross over. So they, the explanations as to what they are, you're seeing a figure in the back. It's a shadow-type figure. It's hard to know what it is if it's not a person. They're big. All these creatures are legends, but use your imagination as to what the person might have been seeing as they're describing these right. things. So again, he comes out and says now that he's sorry that he ever reported it because he was ridiculed for seeing a Bigfoot when he never said well, especially he back saw then. Right. a Bigfoot. Right. right. But people jump to conclusions and fill in the blanks themselves. Now, the creature is still seen today and reports continue to be prominent. Lee Hample is a farmer whose property runs adjacent to Bray Road. And he has apparently seen the creature with trail cams and night vision many, many times. He's also witnessed many UFOs around his property as well. Some of the supernatural events that took place on his farm can only be seen on night vision footage, as Hampel can't see what was happening with the naked eye. Quote, it looks like a huge structure is on fire and UFOs and orbs flying in and out of it. And who knows what's going on? When he takes the camera away, the night vision, he can't see anything. And yet when he holds the camera up, you can see all of this activity going on. And it's very, very strange. Right now, there's conferences about the Beast of Bray Road, festivals in Elkhorn now. They've made huge. Taking advantage of a lot of these stories. And a lot of these stories we'll be talking about, there are festivals. There's, There's meetings where just people will get together and celebrate or try to see these things in their natural habitat. Now, again, as we mentioned, Josh Gates uh, and Destination X did a two-part show on it a few years back. I did watch it. Uh, Bucks County Paranormal, who's a very well-known paranormal team with a huge online following, was out here just last year doing an investigation. Bucks County is fronted by Eric Mintel, who's a very well-known, world-renowned jazz musician. He's played at the White House several times. He's played at the Kennedy Center. And he's also a paranormal investigator i was wondering what so, the one had to do with the other yeah so i mean this this dude is 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 no slouch right um but during an investigation mintel's team saw a number of things that they could not explain but you know mintel eric mintel he does seem to be convinced of the, of the validity of the beast of bray road he says quote lee has got a monster on his property there is no doubt about that Now, the other probably most well-known cryptid legend of the Kettle Moraine takes place in the area of Holy Hill, the beautiful Catholic Basilica in Aaron, Wisconsin, close to my old stomping grounds of Hartford, Wisconsin, a little well, north, northwest of... You, you're from this area, but yeah, you had a photography studio uh, in that I had area a studio for there a for eight years, right next to the mineshaft, right on the intersection of 83 and 60. Love Hartford. Spent a lot of time there. Now... This has to do mainly around the Hogsback Road, parts of which are pretty treacherous. Right? And before we get too far into it, stories of these similar creatures exist all throughout the United States, especially this type of creature from Texas to Maryland. There are stories all throughout the country of the, of the goat man. Now in Wisconsin, it has mainly to do, it takes place mainly around Hogsback Road, right? Lots of sharp curves, winding segments along steep cliffs. 
right? And the, and the legend, true or not, kind of starts like this for Goatman in Wisconsin. So way back in the 1870s, a pair of newlyweds were attempting to navigate Hogsback Road at night in their wagon. So they just get married, right? They're in their wagon. This is the 1870s. So think about what they're driving in then. And they're driving on Hogsback Road. I can't even, I can't even imagine that. As someone who's driven on Hogsback Road today, Right? In modern vehicles, you that sounds in insane to me. I did not do it on a Why wagon. Why didn't you get a wagon and do it the right way? <laughs> I should, right. What kind of a researcher am I? Yeah, right? dedicate yourself. Jeez. Now, not all of Hogsback is like that. I mean, some of it is pretty straightaway normal road, right? But there, but the curvy parts can get pretty nuts. So doing this in a wagon in the 1870s <laughs> at night is pretty risky, right? So anyway, they were used to that a little bit better. Sure. And, and how the story goes, obviously, is they're on this treacherous road. And, of course, they have a wheel splinter, right? And they can't fix it, right? It's nighttime. I, I always get a fat, a fat tire, a flat tire when I'm going through these situations. Of course, myself. right. I mean, this this is already a, starting to sound like Friday the 13th. It's right. There's a movie going on <laughs> right. here. Yeah. So, the guy, you know, the guy gets out, and he's like, I can't fix it. I got to walk back to town. So he, you know, he leaves. Maybe it's a porn. Maybe it's a horror flick. <laughs> he leaves the wife in the, in the, in the car, in the wagon. Right, and he's walking back to town. It's the middle of the night. So she's scared, not only for her own safety. She doesn't know what's out there in the middle of the woods in the 1870s. He's probably freaking out because it's nighttime in the middle of the woods in the he's, 1870s. I don't care if you're a man or not. It's oh, still no, scary. No question about it. So she's waiting and waiting and waiting, and finally she starts hearing rustling outside the car. So she's like, finally, he's back. So now I'm, I'm going to read from... A, a book called Goatman, Flesher Folklore from J. Nathan Couch. J. Nathan Couch is to Goatman what Linda Godfrey is to Beast of Bray Road, right? Nobody probably has done more research about Goatman than J. Nathan Couch. Now, so he's telling this story, and I'm reading from his book, and he says, it sounded as if a person was approaching. As she neared the canopy of the wagon to greet her lover, she stopped and stood deathly still. She began to hear strange sounds like she'd never heard before. First, heavy snuffling, like a large animal that detected an unfamiliar scent, and then a coarse bleeding, like some terrible goat. She cautiously peeked outside, and a terrible form stood in the moonlight. It was a creature covered in coarse red hair, standing on two legs like a man, but with the horned head and long muzzle of a goat. She screamed and shrank to the back of the wagon. The animal bleated again, and then there was silence. Time passed, eventually through sheer exhaustion, fitful of sleep came over the woman. The sun, freshly risen when she woke, galvanized by daylight, she ran outside for any sign of her husband. On the ground, she found large cloven-hooved tracks that turned from the wagon and disappeared into the tree line. Bolstered by daylight, she followed. There, at the edge of the forest, the ground around a large oak tree was drenched in blood. She looked up to find the mutilated remains of the man she'd just married dangling from the gnarled limb. Janine Van Beckham, Ghosts of Washington County Research Center supervisor, had a quote that said, A former Civil War soldier's covered wagon broke an axle and he went for help. Goatman appeared, scaring his wife, and she hid in the wagon until morning when she found her husband hanging dead, dripping with blood, unquote. So, right, this, this, this story is around in Washington County, right? Nobody knows the exact origin of it. Nobody knows who these people were. They're kind of unnamed. But this is, a, this is a story, an urban legend that has lasted in Washington County forever. The point is, since then, the legend says that the goat man has been known to lure drivers over the edge 
of roads steep embankment and when help arrives the vehicle is empty so th- this is how far the story has gone over the years and how that hearsay has led to dramatic stories right so it it becomes goatman becomes an urban legend throughout washington county there was even a gnarled old oak tree along hogsback road that was known as the hanging tree where you know this supposedly took place they actually wound up taking it down because it just became, you know, people were playing pranks around it. It was a gathering spot for kids. Um, so they actually took the tree down. And, and basically, this became fodder for high school kids, for campfire tales. There were reported sightings seen in the 2000s. People reportedly saw uh, a bipedal furry creature crossing Highway 60, crossing Scenic Road, which is near Holy Hill. Sightings in Newburgh, sightings in, in Whitewater. There's even a road in Kewaskum which obviously is not far from Holy Hill, uh, called South Mill Road, which is known as Goatman Road. Now, this legend is a bit different, as uh, South Mill Road is off Highway 28, and it dead ends into the Kewaskum Maple Oakwood State Natural Area. So this is a different kind of origin story for Goatman. So this says, you know, by the ruins, by this kind of natural area in Kewaskum on this dead-end road, there is an old abandoned farmhouse. Now, according to legend, this farmhouse was the homestead of a goat farmer who was also a raging alcoholic. And he wound up killing his wife in this murderous rage one night and then began killing his goats, one of whom wound up impaling him with its horns. And the farmer bled out in the woods, and now he haunts the woods uh, as this creature, you know, damned for what he had for what he had done. And there have been sightings in the area by hunters of these strange, you know, goat-like bipedal humanoid figures this version was known for a bad temper and a foul mouth he was said to kill any child that went into the field surrounding or into his house he mangles the victims and hangs the bodies from the trees today said that the dilapidated house that remains in surrounding fields are haunted by goat man as you said now most believe that goat man was started by parents or at least the legend of the married newlyweds was exacerbated by parents to keep kids out of um, you know, like Lover's Lane type situations it, along Hogsback Road, which was which was the kind of the place to be We're at that time. Teenagers hung right. Out. Don't you know? Don't go, you know, looking for paradise by the dashboard light too late, or the goat man's going to get you. And also, as you said, for teenage drivers to avoid Hogsback Road altogether because it was so treacherous and it was the scene of a lot of accidents. Well, and and suppose there's speculation that there were bad people as the term would be that was teenagers that were hanging out there that would yell and throw things at passersby possibly this legend possibly this led to the legend of goat man but it might have just been kids being assholes basically too it seems that the genesis of the goat man might be in maryland and it surrounds a real place called the beltsville agricultural research center which is a usda facility a U.S. Department of Agriculture facility. This is a real place. And at this particular facility throughout its history, numerous genetically altered animals have been created. So they're messing around with livestock. That sounds right, right though. They're making animals. They're they're taking pigs and making them create more pork, right? They're taking chickens and and creating chickens that lay more eggs. They're, They're taking livestock and making them produce more milk. They're all genetically modified, right? And goats, too. So this is a real place. These are really things that were done here. Now, the legend starts that about in, you know, sometime in the 1970s, a researcher was dabbling in splicing goat and human DNA. And it went very 
very wrong. <laughs> like, how could it not? Like, yeah. what would actually be the right? Especially back then, when they didn't do. have the technology we have now. And the, the you know, obviously, the result of the experiment uh, escaped, and now you have birth of a legend. The Goat Man in Maryland is to this day reportedly seen fairly frequently, and oftentimes family pets are turning up missing and blamed on this half man, half goat uh, beast. But the legend has evolved over the decades. Some of the stories, once portraying a scary creature, said that the Goatman has actually become a kinder, gentler, and a bit of an environmentalist. Quote, The story went that Goatman was an old hermit, half person, half goat, who was living in the Kettle Moraine forest. He would come out and harass teens parking in the Kettle Moraine. He was an old hermit who lived in the Kettle Moraine. He was human, but he lived in the forest as a friend of sixth graders. He would visit and watch over them and his message was to leave the forest in better condition than when they came, unquote. This is from Rich Canings, a teacher at Silverbrook Middle School in West Bend. He still had an edgier side, though, evidently, because if kids left rappers in the woods, the goat man rang a bell at camp, and then he'd be on the prowl. I believe this was a public service announcement yeah, more than anything. Only you can, can prevent <laughs> dirtying the forest with your garbage, or the goat man will do it if you don't. Now, interestingly enough, there have never been... Any UFO sightings at a company Goatman, right? Whereas Abisa Bray Road, it's got all kinds of UFO sightings with it. Bigfoot has all kinds of UFO sightings associated with it. There is no UFO activity associated with sightings of the Goatman. That's one explanation that doesn't get included in that. So, like you say, it's just got to be some kind of crossbreeding or genetic experimentation. Now, there is a town in Wisconsin right in the middle of the Kettle Moraine that bills itself as the UFO capital of the world. Now, there's actually three towns in Wisconsin that bill themselves as the UFO capital of the world. Dundee, which we're going to talk about, Elmwood, and Belleville. Now, much of this in Dundee is due to the antics of one man, a legend in town, really, a legend in much of the state, named Bill Benson, who was the owner of Benson's Hideaway, which was a very popular bar restaurant on Long Lake in Campbellsport, right in the middle, again, of the Kettle Moraine. Now, Bill claims that in the late 1940s, right around Roswell time, 1947, he saw crop circles in an oat field on a farm owned by relatives of his, and this would be just outside of Dundee, again, which is near Campbellsport, Fond du Lac County. He's also said that he saw unexplained lights in the skies over Vietnam while he was in service over there on guard duty. But it was a time in 1985 when he and a neighbor of his both saw a craft hovering in the sky over another neighbor's farm, scaring the cattle who all ran back into the barn. That was really the proof for him that there's some stuff going on in the skies over eastern Wisconsin. Now, Benson's Hideaway hosted UFO Days for 30-plus years. And UFO Days was a place, was a, was a festival every summer. I think it was the third weekend in July every year where UFO enthusiasts would come to uh, Benson's Hideaway and talk about UFOs, talk about their uh, experiences with UFOs and aliens and whatnot. Um, and they were encouraged to share their own alien and UFO stories, and it became this huge very famous, well-known festival every summer. Benson's Hideaway, is, it's a bar. It's an alien-themed tavern on the shore of Long Lake, which we'll get more into later. Benson's enthusiasm on the subject is said to be known worldwide. So this guy is, is well-known for people who want to celebrate this kind of stuff. 
Now they kept us. They even kept a scrapbook in the bar with photos that people took of UFO activity in the area. Some of which was happening right over the bar, and it became known, as Mickey said, throughout the world by UFO researchers that this was, you know, seemingly a place where this activity would happen, and UFO days would bring these people in from across the globe. It be it was a international phenomena. UFO days in Dundee, Wisconsin. Even though Wisconsin was technically is only ranked as the 23rd in the U.S. for UFO sightings. So there's 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 another list for you. Love it. Rankings it of, of where the UFO sightings <laughs> happen in this country. Wisconsin's only 23, which is kind of middle of the road, as you know. As much as it happens here and we claim to have the UFO, UFO capitals of the world, eh, kind of seems a little sketchy. I think there's another agenda that they're going for. When what? They, when they build themselves. Money? Now, Dundee Mountain is at the southern end of Long Lake. Known, uh, again, as Dundee Mountain, it's actually a came, as Mickey was describing earlier what a came is. It's basically a deposit of sand left by the glacier. So it's, you know, it's called Dundee Mountain, but it's it's a small mountain. It's But it's, it, you know, it's pretty tall, and it clearly dominates the landscape there. It's a very popular spot for hiking uh, in the state forest. So, you know, it's it's... Technically not a mountain, but it's pretty huge in this area. And it's rumored to, to as we're alluding to, be a, the base for extraterrestrial activity. It actually is a, it's 270 feet tall, and it actually sits at the south end of Long Lake, which is where a lot of these sightings actually exist over the top of the lake. This lake was formed by sediment left behind by gla- last glaciers to come through the area over 10,000 years ago. Even the local Native Americans were aware of the unusual properties of this mountain and the UFO activities, and they referred to it as Spirit Hill. Right. It, it does seem to, to be the draw. Dundee Mountain does seem to be the draw uh, for this UFO activity. It seems to be the area where most of the UFO sightings uh, are seen so they would you know all these ufo enthusiasts would come to dundee every year and they would go to the top of dundee mountain and they'd bring their cameras and their video cameras and whatnot and they would wait for um things to happen in the sky and you know now and, and again this became a worldwide phenomenon people from all over the place would come to dundee for this kind of ufo escapade that literally they all over the world yeah. people would visit now, in 2001, a reporter for the Journal Times from Racine followed some of these researchers up to Dundee Mountain and hung out, you know, during UFO days and, and wrote what, what I thought was a pretty poignant article. You know, it wasn't an article that you would expect to, to, to read, you know, kind of some of these misfits getting together and looking at, you know, looking at the sky for myths and whatnot. And he talked about a lot of the photos that were in that scrapbook. And he says, quote, the photos are impressive. Colored lights are arranged in the shape of a diamond or a lighted orb half as big as the moon streaking through the air. And, you know, he goes on and he talks a lot about a lot of the people that were there and kind of the outlandish ones, but he's very gentle with them. He's, quote, somebody here, she says, quote, I've seen a lot of different shaped craft since the 70s. I've had ongoing contact with aliens, says a grandmotherly Bonnie Meyer. She's a 59-year-old Nina retiree, a former cook for a grade school. Quote, you realize very fast that there's some people you can't talk to about it, Myers said. We have friends, and unless they bring it up, we don't bring it up. And he's talking to another person. She says, quote, we're your sister, we're your brother, we're your parents, we're your therapist. Regular people have sightings. Right? So he, he's trying to bring the human element into this 
UFO days, which kind of had a reputation, obviously, of being a bunch of misfits, as we said, looking for UFOs, but it wasn't. These are normal people that have interests, that believe something that they see. It's a support group, so to speak, like because the first person has to come out before everyone else starts pouring out. And especially like we've mentioned back in the time where you were crazy if you talked about this stuff, it's become more a, a fabric of our society where you can readily speak about it. But back then, you know, you, you needed someone else to say that they saw it before you could go, oh, well, you're like-minded like me. You you had similar experiences, and I, I, I'm comfortable telling you about it. Now, there is a, a documentary about UFO days called the Dundee Project, which really illustrates who these people are. And it's made by, by Mark Borchardt, who's a, a Milwaukee filmmaker who makes small independent films, and he's made a huge name for himself in kind of the independent uh, um, kind of cult circles, right? If you don't know the movie American Movie, look it up. It's, it's phenomenal. It's uh, kind of the, the behind-the-scenes escapades of him making one of his other movies called Coven, which was a massive cult classic in the late 90s. So Mark Borchardt is somebody who's, who's fairly well-known. So he makes this documentary called The Dundee Project, and it, which made big waves in 2017 at quite a few national film festivals. And it's all about these UFO seekers and, you know, who meet once a year in Dundee and they're looking for aliens and they drink a lot of beer. And he it's talks... A festival. Right. And he talks to these people, you know, they're very eccentric. Some of them say a lot of weird things, right? But again, he puts a really human spin but on it. But then again, so do we, so... Sure. You know, one of these guys is called UFO Bob, you know, and he talks right. very openly that he frequently talks to aliens and that he... He says that he knows that they tune into Packer games, and it's it's actually very, very entertaining. These people are serious. Robert Keene, UFO Bob, supposedly had a telepathic con- contact with this alien Scott mentioned named Eviata from the Pleiadian star system. It's said that she visited Dundee often and liked to watch Packer games while she was in town. Well, what the hell? I mean... It's a different experience. Who doesn't? Even I mean, you, aliens you like the Packers, to, man. You can't come to Dundee and not watch the Packers right. game. Even aliens are Packer fans. Everybody says God's a Packer fan, even aliens. Go, Pack, go! The, the movie is more or less a comedy, and I don't think it was meant to be when he started, but it's actually... Uh, it, it's a it's only 19 minutes long but they're fun loving right? people uh, of who course. have had experiences that they want to talk about strongly encourage you to look that up it's called the Dundee project so then in 1995 a supposed a supposed crop circle inexplicably appeared in a marshy area reeds of long lake near Benson's tavern now picture this this is the reeds in the water and supposedly these reeds were so tight-knit that people could actually walk on them without falling into the water. These are crop circles in the reeds in the water. They were so well put together that they could walk on them. Now, in 1998, Benson and five others witnessed a large orange glowing orb hovering over summit of Dundee Mountain. It disappeared when four U.S. Air Force fighter jets suddenly flew in after it. This is kind of along the lines of of the mountain being a base. In 2002, UFO Days attendees witnessed six glowing, flashing amber spheres in sky over Long Lake, even flickering from the depths below the lake. And finally, in 2004, UFO Days attendees witnessed a triangular craft overhead with a Y-shaped light pattern on underside. So in their opinion, they had plenty of experiences where they saw these things, and apparently this is a, a place 
where these occurrences do happen. Now, one speaker that they, because they had plenty of speakers that would show up to these UFO days, Donald Niemeyer, he claims to have been aboard 80 different spaceships, one of them having larger circumference than Chicago. The entire city of Chicago, he claims that one of these spaceships had a larger circumference than that city. He claims to have boarded in three different ways amongst all these 80 different times. He beamed up, he floated up, and he walked on. He claims to have visited four different planets and during an interview showed a picture of an alien, which was a blue bird man with an orange beak about six foot eight tall. This guy seems like he has had experiences that a lot of people don't have. Maybe you'd call him crazy, but he seems like a guy who is willing to share his stories, if nothing else. Now, that, that sighting that you just mentioned in 2004 where there's a, a supposed Y-shaped craft that showed itself in the sky during UFO days, that is on YouTube. You can look that up, and that is on YouTube. A few of these stories do have. No, th- this is this is before drones, right? I mean, right. so is it is it a fake? I, I, everything can be a hoax, of course it can. Everything can be oh, a with fake. Photoshop and every, but, all the technology mm-hmm. we have now, right? But this is a video of this craft showing up in the sky, and all these people are down there. They're all drunk. They're all looking at this thing, and they're all talking about it, right? But it's not a drone. This is you know this is before any of us had access to drones, so I'm not exactly sure what they would have done. But again, that craft that they talk about, that Y-shaped craft that shows itself is on YouTube. You can look it up and make your own assumptions. Now, back to that thing where you said that the craft was bigger than the city of Chicago. I read an account, not to, like last week, I just heard this, where it was somebody who claims that he was working at Area 51. And he walked, and he, he says that he was on a craft that we have we're reverse engineering or whatever we're doing. You know, nobody knows exactly what's going that's on. That's a long line. Area 51. But this person says some of that stuff, right? this person says that he was in a craft that's at Area 51, and he says that that these otherworldly beings, right? These these aliens, they're they have messed with the space time continuum because even though it's a craft that looks like a spaceship, you know what? Anything that we would see a, a flying saucer or whatnot, that's not very big. But once you walk into it. He said it was the size of like an NFL football stadium. So it's not very big when you're outside of it. The size of it on the outside is one size, but once it changes you get in, when you go inside of it. A lot of that might even be simulated right. technology that they have. Who knows? It's technology that's otherworldly, so we think. And it's it's stuff that we don't necessarily know about. So and that this guy that says he went into this craft and it was as big as a, a football stadium. He, he according to him, he went in there. That's what and, it looked like, and saw this and could not believe what he was seeing, right? And turned right around and came back out. And he was only in there for a minute, but he was told he was in there for four hours. And he remembers it vividly because you don't forget something like that. Whether that was the allotted time or the amount of time that actually existed and whether what he was looking at was simulated or, you know, just real or not, that's what he witnessed. That's what he says he witnessed, right? I mean, it's all fascinating stuff to to, to look into. I would love that to happen to me. God damn it. Now, even though this sounds like one of the greatest festivals ever that Mickey and I have never been to, sadly, Bill Benson passed away um, in late 2021. So the last UFO days was held as a celebration of Bill's life last summer in 2022 at Benson's Hideaway. And Benson's Hideaway right now remains closed. So this will be the first summer, summer of 2023, will be the first summer since 1988 that UFO Days does not happen in Dundee. I think we should start it up again. It's literally the end of an era.
Now, on discoverwhitewater.org, this is Whitewater's website to promote itself, as every city has. It says, Whitewater, named for the white sands of Whitewater Creek, is nestled in the southern Kettle Moraine Forest. It offers 22 parks and four lakes. It's home to UW-Whitewater, recognized as a tree campus by the Arbor Day Foundation, surrounded by old oaks and hickory, natural prairie, farmlands, and forests. Whitewater is a feast for the nature lover. From biking and hiking to boating and fishing, there's no shortage of outdoor recreation. See for yourself. Man, sounds, was that a good commercial? Sounds wonderful. Let's go there right, right? now. Whitewater is a messed up, fucked up place. place. <laughs> Which that's the reason I want to go there. The whitewater that I know is a lot different from what I just read. Now, again, I mean that lovingly. It's a great right. town. That's what Been they should put on the website. Several times. That's what makes us freaks want to go there. But it's got some issues, right? Issues that Mickey and I are going to delve into much more detail uh, at a later date. But let's talk a little bit about whitewater right now. First of all, it's called Second Salem. Meaning Salem, Massachusetts. I didn't even know that, to right? be honest, until this research. So there's historically a lot of witches, supposedly, in the Whitewater area. Now, all this starts with the opening of the Morris Pratt Institute in Whitewater in 1889. Now, what is that, right? What is the Pratt Institute? Now, Morris Pratt was a native of New York and moved to Wisconsin as a young man with his brothers in the 1840s. So we're going back a little ways here. So he, he became a farmer, a very successful farmer, um, and he was also quite active in spiritualism. Now, you got to remember what time we're in here in the mid to late 1800s, right? Spiritualism was taking America by storm. It was a massive, massive industry. Obviously, the belief that the living could communicate uh, and contact with the dead to learn more about life and death was on people's minds quite a bit. We're coming out of the Civil War. Nobody had ever experienced trauma and death and destruction like that before, right? Hundreds of thousands were dead, meaning families all over the place are learning how to deal with this. And spiritualism was one thing that they turned to. And it became a very large movement all throughout the country, not in Wisconsin, or not just in Wisconsin, I should say, all throughout the nation. Spiritualism was a massive deal. And people would pay a lot of money to go to a medium and try to receive some kind of sign that their loved one is okay somewhere, right? Their loved one who died during the Civil War or what have you. And many of these people, obviously claiming that they were mediums, of course, were not. And they were charlatans. And they what? Were, They're it, not it, all it, legit. Believe it or not, it happens. Man, you keep happens, crashing man. my world every time you say stuff right? like that. Unless you're talking about the Long Island medium. I mean, she is grade A, legit. That's real. <laughs> so, you know, obviously we have this stuff going on still today. But Pratt was very active in spiritualist circles in Wisconsin at this time. And he had professed that if he, if, if he ever came into money, right? He was a successful farmer, but he was a farmer. So he didn't have a lot of money. And he always thought that if he ever became wealthy, that he wanted to build a school for spiritualism. But he likely knew that that probably wasn't going to happen. But he still remained active. It was a cause that he believed in. And he came to meet a well-known Wisconsin psychic at the time named Mary Hayes Chenoweth, who's, you know, if, you, if you're into this stuff, if you read this stuff, if you research this stuff, Mary Hayes Chenoweth is a name that comes up quite frequently. So he met Mary Hayes Chenoweth, who advised Pratt to invest in land in northern Wisconsin. Out of the blue, right? 
invest in land in northern Wisconsin. I'm a farmer. What am I going to do with that? So he did anyways. He buys attractive land in northern she Wisconsin. probably saw something that he believed. And it became one of the richest deposits of iron ore anywhere in the nation, and he became incredibly wealthy. Man, did that work out in a <laughs> way he didn't expect. It just seems so damn easy when you read this stuff in a book, right? It seems so easy. So he becomes incredibly wealthy, and he did what he professed to do. He so built what his, you get for being spiritualist, though? He built his school. Built it in 1888. It opens Pratt up. Pratt Institute. Opens up in 1889, and it is the first school dedicated to the science of spiritualism in the world. Located on the corner of what is now Center Street and Fremont Street in Whitewater, Wisconsin. Now, again, it opens in 1889, and they begin offering classes, but it didn't become officially organized as the Pratt Institute and offer full courses until 1903, right after he passes away. Well, the report suggests that the curriculum consisted of psychic research, comparative religion, and evolution and Bible study as it relates to principles of spiritualism. Also, that there were weekly seances that occurred in a room that they called the all-white room on the third story of the school. It did have courses that any other school would have. It did have math, geography, English, Eventually, and not, not initially, but... Not long after it opened to become a, a legitimate college, it started including all right. these things. Now, the community didn't really know what to make of this, right? Shocking. This is the first, Especially back then. first one of these in the world, right? This is, this is unheard of. And in, people were still judgmental. They just didn't couldn't do it to the level we can do it now with media. E- that we well, even, even though the spiritualism was so popular back in those days, right? Even, even then, right. they were like, what? Are you doing <laughs> to yeah, our right. little and community? I, and, I, and I'm quick to say people are judgmental, but of course, to some degree, they had a legitimate concern about what what are these wackos doing? Sure, and they called it Pratt's Folly. They called it the Spook Temple. They had all these, you know, derogatory pet names for it. But yeah, attendance sure at the school worse than that. Attendance at the school was pretty good in the early it's interesting, days. Interesting, if right? nothing else. Sure, I mean it. It had. People that went to that school, it was maintaining. I wouldn't mind going to that, to be honest, nowadays. And and attendance remained steady and did well into the 1930s when the Great Depression pretty much did a number on it, as it did many. To everything else. Right. So it closes for several years in, in the 30s, and it opens up again in 1936. But by then, attendance um, had kind of hit the skids, and the building closed for good in 1940. But... The Pratt Institute in organization, although it was homeless, the organization stayed intact, and it reopened in another building in Milwaukee, where it remains to this, to this very day. day. The Pratt Institute is still in operation. The original building was bought by AT&T and demolished in the 1950s, but as Scott said, it still lives in Milwaukee and is active to this day. Almost 140 years after it opened, it is still one of the few schools in the world dedicated to the occult. Especially since it was considered the first one ever. That's pretty impressive. Technically, it's in Wauwatosa today, but it is still um, very much in operation. Now, as Mickey said, the building originally built in Whitewater has been torn down, but for a while it was vacant, and it was eventually purchased to be dorms for the State Teachers College. So you have a bunch of teenage girls living in a building built for the practice of the occult in which conducted regular seances. Stories of witches could never be derived from that, right? No. Now, these stories of witchcraft actually start 
at the building of a water tower in Whitewater in Sterren Park in 1889, which is still there. It's 80 feet tall, limestone, referred to today as the Witch's Tower and one of the oldest fully functional water towers in the state. Now remember that it it opens in 1889, which is the same year the, the Pratt Institute opened. And so, it's located in the middle of what is called the Witch's Triangle, where most of the stories stem from in this area. And Pratt Institute used to also, was also located in the center of mm-hmm. Now, this is thought to be where witches actually performed rituals at the turn of the century. They would surround the tower at night performing rituals. Now, there was an iron gate placed around the tower with barbed wire spikes pointed inward, as if it was trying to keep something inside of it rather than keeping people out, which is interesting, right? It's got an iron gate placed around the tower with barbed wire spikes pointed inward, as if it was trying to keep something from getting out of the tower, not in. Also regarding the three cemeteries in Whitewater, Calvary Cemetery, Hillside Cemetery, and Oak Grove Cemetery, which Mickey just said it creates a triangle. Now, all three points create a triangle, right? But the positions That's of... That's how triangles work. Exactly. <laughs> the positions of these cemeteries create a perfect isosceles triangle, which is a very important symbol That's in witchcraft. That's kind of strange, too. Right. Five isosceles triangles make a pentagram. Right. And everything within that triangle, according to legend, everything within that triangle and along the walls of the triangle is purported to be haunted. And they have the stories to back it up. And as Mickey said, right dead center of that triangle is the former spot of the Pratt. And everything that's haunted, it's, it's said that as spirits move from cemetery to cemetery, as they believe. And also in the Anderson Library, as we talked earlier in the beginning banter that we had, in that list of haunted places to visit, the Anderson Library at UW-Whitewater has this book that supposedly, if you read it, or has, I, I should say, has uh, compelled students to, to, to commit suicide, right? The library obviously doesn't quite say that. No, they don't necessarily want to go along it, with it. It does, it, it, the building, or the, the book is kept hidden, and you are able to see it when you request it but the book is a catholic is a catholic missile they hear these stories too the library has heard these rumors too and the only book they have they don't know that the book that they're talking about is the actual book but it's the only one that they have in their collection which resembles what this rumor is and it's this catholic missile and they don't know anybody that obviously has killed themselves after looking at it and such and there's nothing nothing demonic written in it or anything like that there's no proof to but again it's a pretty old book um and they don't exactly know the origins of it. There's nothing backing, you know, the horror stories that are going on with it. As far as the triangle, the actual names of the cemeteries are Oak Grove Cemetery, Hillside Cemetery, and Calvary Cemetery. It is known that if people wander these cemeteries at night, strange noises and occurrences happen, supposedly spirits awakening to fend off trespassers. One story associated with the Calvary Cemetery in specific involves a woman who was a cook for the boarding students at the school named Myrtle. She married a man named Edward Shaw, who ran the local milk business. They lived happily until she fell in love with a whitewater student and poisoned her husband in 1922 to be with this student she fell in love with. This became known as the Poison Widow. This is one of the stories that backs up all these legends and where these spirits and stuff might exist the original farmhouse where it happened was located where calvary cemetery is now myrtle and the husband are buried there now the original farmhouse was moved down the road and is now is used as an apartment building for the whitewater students another story 
that's linked to the Calvary Cemetery about a, a girl named Bridget Ellen Horan, otherwise known as Nellie. The parents were Joseph and Judith, and three of the four daughters, Nellie, Anna, and Agnes, are all buried on a hill in this Calvary Cemetery. Known as a high-ranking wealthy members of Whitewater community after having moved there in 1880, the death starts happening. We talked about death. This is where it starts occurring. Mother Judith first died in 1882, having symptoms of having been poisoned. No foul play was suspected, so there was no investigation. The father, Joseph, died about six weeks later and fell ill and, quote, expired during terrible spasms and convulsions, unquote. Both of the parents were now dead. The money was left to these four unmarried daughters, including a previously unmentioned Gertrude, who didn't live in the Whitewater area. Agnes, having been the youngest, was left the largest share. Just over two months later, Agnes passed at age 17. Her share was passed to the other three sisters. Authorities began to think at this point that someone was out to get this Horan family, though no suspects were identified. After a few years of normalcy, Anna Anna suddenly fell ill on November 30th of 1884. Nellie was sent for because Anna wanted her sister to be around her. She gave Anna a dose of what was thought to be opium powder. It turns out Anna passed away hours later on December 2nd, 1884, with strychnine found in her stomach. So after this all happened, an investigation began, and a young girl confessed during this investigation to having seen Nellie buying strychnine a few days prior at the drugstore. During the trial that eventually happened, Nellie claimed that she was buying the strychnine for a rat problem. The New York Times would would say, this is how big a story this became, the New York Times became included. She was tall and graceful. She was intelligent and striking. And after just 12 minutes, the jury deliberated and ended up acquitting her. There's a legend that says that Nellie ingested the poison herself eventually and confessed to killing the family and to an unknown fifth victim before passing. But the actual truth is, after having been acquitted, she married a man named John Burns. She lived into her 70s, and she died of natural causes on October 23, 1938, and she's buried next to the rest of her family in Calvary Cemetery. It's still believed to this day by most of the people who know anything of the subject that she murdered the entire family except for Gertrude, who, again, didn't live in the area. It's very Lizzie Borden-esque. Yeah. Well, that's why I wanted to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. And that it adds to the creepiness. Another story that seems to be somewhat linked, but I don't necessarily believe it is. In 1923, a creature of Whitewater Lake, a fisherman claimed his boat tipped over and tentacles grabbed him and dragged him into the lake as he tried swimming to his boat. Decades later, three friends that were walking along the beach of the lake discovered a group of black-cloaked figures chanting and dancing on the beach. The group later reported seeing some type of creature rise out of the water. The three friends, destined to return the next day because they wanted to see what happened, all that remained was a burn pile and what seemed like small animal bones. So so what is with the Kettle Moraine? Right? Why does all this stuff happen there or said to happen there? Right? The UFOs, goat men, Bigfoot the beast of Bray Road, witches. I mean, it's everything is, is there. There's also possibly a separate 
occult ritual activity of the Kettle Marine, which led to the Satanic Panic. Rituals included animal mutilations. In the mid-90s, stories speak of a woman riding a horse through the Kettle Marine. She came across animal remains, appearing cleanly severed and mutilated. Later, that same woman on the horse had another encounter. It was a naked man emerged from the brush onto the trail and then quickly disappeared. Now, this could be considered the Beast of Prey Road. This could be considered a goat man. Who knows? Or maybe it was just some pervert who was doing something strange to animal remains. But again, that's where a lot of these legends live and come from. And at some point, even the FBI admitted to having been aware of this activity. So whether it's real or not, it's on the radar. So why is this stuff happening in the Kettle Moraine? Well, not technically part of the Kettle Moraine, but in very close proximity to it, just east of it, lies the city of Burlington, Wisconsin. And there's a theory out there called the Burlington Vortex. And, you know, somewhere within Burlington. I love this concept. Within, you know, somewhere within Burlington, this is the theory, or maybe all of Burlington, there is a vortex. Right. Now, Sedona, Arizona, obviously, is is very famous for being a vortex. I don't know if that's been proven or not, but people travel from all over the world just to kind of sit in that red clay desert because of the energy there. They like they can physically feel a difference. And, uh, you know, the Sedona vortexes are thought to be swirling centers of energy that are conducive to healing meditation and self-exploration isn't there a sedona coat company too or something there must be i think they make some kind of boots or something don't they you know vortexes are these places where the earth seems um especially alive with energy you know many people feel inspired and recharged or uplifted you know it's kind of called like a cathedral without walls is what sedona is often referred to as now the thought is that veils between dimensions are thinner here making a vortex theoretically possibly multidimensional, right? Now, a number of scientists that delve into this stuff, quantum mechanics, I know it I, like the back of my hand. Quantum, oh, yeah. It's, yeah what right. do you need to know, right? Every book I've ever read is about this. They, they think this is 100% possible. Some of them think that this is 100% possible. In quantum mechanics, multiple states of existence for tiny particles are all possible at the same time. It's called a wave function. It encapsulates all of those possibilities. However, when we look, uh, we only observe one. So the many worlds theory proposes instead that every time one state or one outcome is observed, there is another world in which a different outcome becomes reality. It's very marvelly, right? Well, but- I, it, I, the point I was trying to make is that we're starting to understand things a little more as we've evolved as 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 a planet especially as a species but like this kind of the string theory is is a theory that has tried to explain how the cosmos how it evolves not how it was created because the big bang is kind of the understood theory but the, the wave theory is is an evolution of the string theory i believe and it's just basically that there's if there are multi-universes these portals exist throughout the planet sure if you watch these shows like like Ancient Aliens and, and The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, and there's more and more of these shows, which is 
you know, becoming more and more of the fabric of our society, we're starting to understand that these are possibilities. That's why these shows are starting to become bigger and bigger deal. It, it's still it's still a fringe theory, right? Right. But there but are very smart people. The conversations who are believe yeah, that exa- is possible. It's yes. very smart people that are very credible sources that are starting to have these conver- well, that have been having these conversations mm-hmm. for a while. So it's like it's like a branching arrangement where, you know. Instant by instant, our perceived universe is branching into near infinite alternatives. Right, right. and and there's even theories where we're going to be able to travel through time because of our mind. That would be explained a lot differently in a much different episode. But the theories and the concepts are are starting to be considered. That there's a lot more to to our universe than we know of. Now, the, the the kicker, though, for a lot of these scientists that believe that this is possible, this alternate universe branching out theory is possible, is that they don't believe it's possible for them to intersect at all. So even though there could be a possibility that there are, you know, 100 versions of us all living different lives, we'd never know it. Right. We'd like never, we'd never meet ourselves into it. You know, that's not physically possible. Well, even but the movies and shows that it's, that are alluding to this more and more, more and more, we're seeing movies and shows, fictional or, or not. Like you said, we don't have that awareness of these other things until somehow we have time traveling ability and screw something up, like the butterfly effect, essentially. Now, in terms of the Beast of Bray Road, Linda Gottfried mentions the fact that most of the sightings are around, and this is this is really intriguing to me. She talks about that the, the fact that most of the sightings of the Beast of Bray Road, the, the credible sightings of the Beast of Bray Road, now, again, there's hoaxes on everything, and hoaxes are usually pretty easy to sniff out. But the credible sightings of the, of the Beast of Bray Road are around areas with heavy concentrations of Indian burial mounds, effigy mounds. And you can virtually overlay maps of these, right? These sightings of the Beast of Bray Road and effigy mounds, especially animal effigy mounds, and they match up almost perfectly. And Native Americans are known to be spiritual people, so they have their stories, they have their explanations about things that are more earthly-based than than what you know the rest of us might explain. But we're basically saying the same things in a lot of cases, and w- when they are willing to speak of it, it, it's probably a legitimate thing. So, you know, when, when you talk about the Beast of Bray Road by Indian mounds you're t- you know now you're talking kind of spirit world type stuff and you're kind of getting into skinwalker territory a little bit here now in in her book Beast of Bray Road in 2003 she and skinwalker sorry to interrupt but skinwalker typically means shape-shifting type type creatures so what what she says about this is she says following this line of very speculative thought going along with the belief that Bigfoot and werewolf sightings are related to indigenous legend, what might possibly induce Native American spirits to manifest as tall, hairy wolf dogs around Walworth and Jefferson counties? Some have suggested that the answer may lie in the vast number of desecrated, bulldozed, and otherwise destroyed burial and effigy mounds and Native American burial grounds here. The region is richly blessed in lakes, and around most of the lakeshores there used to exist hundreds of conical burial mounds. There were also hundreds of animal effigy mounds, turtles, lizards, water panthers, and thunderbirds unique in all of the world to the territory mostly contained in and near the state of Wisconsin. Yeah, baby. Wait staff and night security guards at Lake Lawn Resort in Delavan, which is literally built over dozens of mounds, 
say that at night, especially when few guests are in the hotel, wisps of spirit beings can be seen floating over the old mound areas, and the mutterings of unintelligible voices are heard throughout the grounds. The sounds have often forced night guards to initiate security checks that never turn up a living culprit. Figures of revenge, guardianship, ancestor tomb reclamation, all have been suggested, unquote. So, you know, this is something that Linda Godfrey, who is not a kook, by the way, she kind of fell into journalism and then she became a, a zoologist and all this stuff as her writing career went on, which she's written now like 20 books. But like you said, you know, when she first started, this was just a... This was a throwaway article. A throwaway right? article, and now she's made a career out of it. But but she's got that cynical side that I alluded to that you and I have. She doesn't necessarily want to believe this stuff is true, but the more you well, hear these stories... And this seems to be what she's come to believe mostly through her research. And nobody knows more about this stuff than her. Nobody has researched this stuff more than her. Um, and, you know, I heard her in an interview with Astonishing Legends, which is another wonderful podcast. Yeah, so if like you like this podcast. stuff, check that out. Um, you know, I heard her a few years ago on Astonishing Legends saying that this is what she was, quote, leaning towards, unquote, is the theory of the Beast of Bray Road being from somewhere else. Not necessarily, be, you know, when she says when she, when she started, she thought it was probably some kind of evolved species of, of wolf. And now she doesn't believe that anymore. Otherworldly. She, she kind of leans toward the fact that these are from some other place. And who are we to argue with Linda Godfrey right now? Well, when we have a politician speculating on these concepts, sure. maybe otherworldly is not even the right term. Maybe these beings that we're not familiar with have been here the entire time. That's that's the speculation in, in some regards. But there are so many things we don't know, and we need to keep an open mind and not be so quick to judge and just assume that what we know is the only way. Right. Now, now we, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that we lost Linda Godfrey um, just a few months ago. She passed, passed away in last November of 2022. And she was in that Destination X episode with Josh Gates that I talked about, and she was looking kind of frail um, in that episode. So I don't know if she cool. was she sick. I'm, that, not, I'm not sure um, what it was. But, you know, if, she if, made it to that. That's if, you, awesome. if you listen to paranormal podcasts or, or TV shows, if you listen to things like Astonishing Legends. So, you know, back in the in the winter when she passed, it was it was kind of a big deal in the paranormal circle. So um, obviously, you know, certainly left her mark on Wisconsin, that's for sure. And, a, you know, a tip of the old Badger Bazaar cap. Uh, to Linda Godfrey, but you know, in, in my opinion, I, th- I I would believe kind of what her initial belief was at first, too, is that these are some kind of, um, and what you had mentioned earlier, Mick, that these these are some kind of gray wolf who has evolved to be able to walk upright. And why not? I mean, every member of the animal kingdom has evolved to what we are now, right, including humans. So why would it stop? So I just, you know, there's there's numerous reasons why they would evolve. They can they can raise up and find prey easier. They can raise up and see danger easier, meaning humans, and they can run away from us, which is right, and you know, that, why we don't have one in a cage right now. And that's right? why, yeah, just because we aren't totally familiar. I mean, they say there's th- at least thousands, if not millions, of species in the oceans that we still don't know about. The African rainforest, we're still finding things that exists that we didn't know about. To say that that 
because we don't know about it, it couldn't exist is, is ridiculous. And and like even legends like Loch Ness, you know, the, the Loch Ness monster, Nessie, maybe that's just a, a creature from prehistoric days that evolved and was able to live on, you know, like like t- the giant turtles. There's a lot of creatures that still exist from ba- way back then. Maybe they just evolved and we never got real glimpses of them. That doesn't mean they didn't weren't weren't able to exist in their in their habitat. They just were smart enough to stay away from us and not let us have further knowledge. Right. Now, you know, in regards to in, in regards to Goatman, you know, I, I you know, I believe that he came here from Maryland in legend only. Right. There's, there's oh, just. You don't think he just no. <laughs> got sick of being a Maryland kid to Wisconsin? There's too many similarities between Wisconsin's Goatman legend and Maryland's Goatman legend. Kind of, you know, origins match up a little bit. And, you know, I don't I don't think that there's any kind well, of. Well, and it's like I, like I explained with, with the different cultures and different ethnic groups coming from wherever they came from, their stories came with them. And whether those stories are based on reality or just explanations as to why their crops died or as to you know why they saw things in 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 the background that they couldn't explain a lot of them are just stories they're just stories but they come with these people as they migrate of course so a lot of these stories are that too but but that's what make legends what they are and that's what makes folklore what it is and it's what makes it fun traditional stories to talk about over centuries and and generations Whitewater is very intriguing to me, very intriguing to me, and that's something that we're going to be delving much deeper in into the future, doing full episodes on it. Um, I can envision us, you know, visiting down there and doing interviews because I really want to know more. I mean, it, the Witches of Whitewater is something that you 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 hear vaguely. We're up obviously further north than Whitewater, so um, you know the the witching legends of Whitewater is something that we we vaguely hear up here. But delving into what we did this this week. I'm super interested in learning more about that. Well, and having been to Salem not that long ago, as we've talked about, it's it's the treatment of these people that, you know, had these beliefs that weren't necessarily part of the mainstream too that is part of that whole fabric of the story we want to talk about. Just right. people being mistreated because they had a different way of looking at things. That's that's part of the whole story. You know, but but look, when when you put this all together, how do you say that there's something not going on in the Kettle Moraine? Right. I mean, this isn't all hoaxes. This isn't all crazy people. There's thousands of accounts over hundreds of years talking about things that would be outside of the norm. Right. And there's that many people recanting what's have gone on and, and giving reports. It can't be bullshit. I mean, I think even for Wisconsin, uh, even for Wisconsin, there's a lot of weird reports for a small area like the, the the kettle moraine that there's there's something to all this stuff and again you know i go back to uh to Lorian Dreezy having to use an alias in linda godfrey's initial article because she was afraid people would ridicule her steve kruger who wished he wouldn't never have recounted the story of the animal that he saw taking the deer out of his truck because he would afraid he was afraid he'd be ridiculed and it would be called a bigfoot and that's exactly what happened the UFO researcher saying that, quote, unless they bring it up, we don't bring it up. Right? All of the people who had seen something that didn't know what it was but never said anything until they heard other people tell their stories. This fear that people have to speak because they'll get ridiculed. 
I mean, there's so much out in this world that we know nothing about. And the least we can do is be inquisitive, right? The least we can do is be curious and ask questions without being called down for it. Open your mind and judge less. I mean, the people who are saying they saw this stuff aren't the ones stopping science. Right. That's the people who say, no, you didn't. Right? Right. So why do we scoff at them? That's why pseudosciences are pseudosciences, because everybody wants to scoff at them, like you said. We, we need, and this seems to be a message for a lot of our episodes, we need to open our minds and, and be more willing to accept what, what's out there that we don't necessarily understand, because that's what people judge, what they don't understand. We need to just recognize there are things out there we can't know about yet. If we're open-minded, we will learn more about it, and it'll become part of our fabric, part of our reality. And it's, uh, most of us, I believe, all we want is the truth. You know, you, you say a lot, Mickey, that you know we're getting to the point where we can start looking at this stuff a bit more seriously now. And, and I really hope that's the case, because if there's one thread of commonality between all of these researchers we talked about today, right, Linda Godfrey and Jane Nathan Couch and Mark Borchardt, the one common thread is that they believe that the people they're talking to really believe what they saw. It's real to them. Now, there's a great article, and maybe I'm getting off topic here, I don't know. There's a great article I read from the Huffington Post, and it was just this week. It just came out this week. I just saw this. Um, And it's entitled, quote, my dad was a famous alien abductee. I thought he was a joke. Now I'm not so sure. Unquote. And it's about this guy whose dad told this outlandish story decades ago. Or so-called outlandish story. Right, right. Of, of seeing UFOs and being an abductee. And this and this guy pretty much ostracized him to his own dad because he thought he was an embarrassment. Well, right? He wasn't the only one, most right? likely. So he didn't go be with him when he was on his deathbed. He just kind of wrote off because his Because of that. And now all these things that are coming out from our own government. We talked about Mike Gallagher today saying all these things that would have never been mentioned by a by a representative of 10 years ago, five years ago even maybe. There's episodes of these shows that I've referred to that talk about presidents having knowledge and communication with otherworldly beings that we don't know about. And, and understandably, they don't tell us because, you know, people might panic. But more and more the government is starting to give away this information or people that used to work for the government are, are giving away this information that, that they know things that we sure. don't. Or they're, or coming out and saying, quite frankly, we don't know things. Right. But, These but I mean, they have knowledge of, we don't know what they are. They have knowledge of things that exist that we question that we don't necessarily understand or, or have been told that we can believe. So this guy is, is seeing all they this, have inf- the proof. all this information that's been coming out the last year or two by our government. And now he's kicking himself because maybe his dad wasn't so crazy after all, right? Now he's dead. Should have believed your dad instead of everybody else. So we owe it to them, right? The weird, the curious, those who aren't afraid to say what they saw. And to ourselves, to take it with some skepticism, sure, of course. But also maybe with some care and consideration. Because for all we know, they're the ones that are right. Amen, brother. Amen.